Hello, and welcome to the Libertarian Podcast from the Hoover Institution. I'm your host, Troy Sinek, joined, as always, by the Libertarian himself, Professor Richard Epstein, Senior Fellow at the Hoover Institution, as well as Professor of Law at NYU and Senior Lecturer at the University of Chicago. Today, the Supreme Court and gay marriage. So, Richard, first full week in October, that means a new Supreme Court session is underway. And we've already got the justices making headlines, but it's for what they're not doing rather than what they are doing. It was announced this week that the court is not going to be hearing any appeals of rulings uh, out of appeals courts that have allowed same-sex marriages to proceed in five different states. This looks like a fairly unambiguous win at this point for for gay marriage. What is the the classical liberal reaction to this development out of the court? Well, it turns out there are two reactions. One is to the short-term politics and the other is to the long-term principle. And since you asked about the classical liberal stuff, let's start with principle first. I mean as a classical liberal, what one always fears is the exercise of monopoly power by the state in any particular area, whether it be business on the one hand or social relations on the other. And what the basic intuition of a classical liberal is, if you're upset about the way in which other people conduct their own lives, it's your problem. It's not their problem. Uh, the last thing that we want to do is to create a social environment in which the angrier you get, uh, the greater the rights you have against your fellow citizens because that means that shrieking turns out to be a very winning strategy. Uh, so what the classical liberal says is here you have a claim of two people uh, to get some form of association and it is said that they need a marriage license which can only be issued by the state and the basic norm is if the state has monopoly power over any kind of relationship it is therefore duty bound to make sure that all people who are similarly situated um, are not going to be blocked. And in this particular case, the definitions of blocking are very broad because what you're saying about this is we could block a gay marriage if somehow or other it causes tangible harm to third parties. But you're not talking about here like giving people a permit to run a manufacturing plant that pollutes. All you're asking two people to do is to get together. And if the only reason the state has to oppose it is that other people dislike it, that's not a sufficient reason to block it. And so therefore, they get the same kind of license from the state monopolist as any other couple turns out to get. And, you know, this is not meant to sort of say that gay lifestyles are superior to or inferior to, even if they may or may not be different from those of other kinds of couples. It's just the argument that the state has a very limited function and what it cannot do is to intrude itself into these kinds of areas. Now, the difficulty comes on the constitutional end because our constitutional tradition on matters of morals has, at least until very recently, say the last 30 or 40 or maybe 50 years, has taken the following view on moral relations. They are essentially subject to the plenary power of the state and there are no individual claims, libertarian or otherwise, that can block the exercise of state discretion. And so if you go look at the 19th century decisions, they give enormous power over what they call things that deal with the morals head of the police power, including marriage of all kinds and descriptions. So that for a very long period of time, uh, even criminal punishment of gay behaviors, which nobody defends today, was regarded as well within the province of the government. So the constitutional project on um, which we could talk about later is how it is that you managed to reverse the 19th century understandings on this point, which were profoundly anti-libertarian, to the 20th and 21st century positions on this point, which take exactly the opposite view. This decision uh, not to act has been touted as 
is an implicit win for the supporters of gay marriage because it keeps the move towards legalization proceeding apace. You don't really have anything putting a break on it. Uh, the way that this has been framed in some circles in the press it is that this is essentially the last real legal victory that supporters of gay marriage needed in the courts. And, and from here on out, it's almost self-executing. Um, is that too optimistic or, or is there a chance you think that someday the courts end up coming back to this issue? Well, I think in effect that what's happened is the decision is clearly a victory for the supporters of gay marriage because ever since the Windsor decision came bound in 2000, I guess it was 13, um, this thing has been something of a rout. Uh, the original decision itself made all sorts of weird arguments about uh, the requirements of deference and federalism to state decisions on matter of marriage and did relatively little to talk about fundamental rights, which sounds the equal protection note, but all the other courts, all the local Lower courts have gone exactly the opposite way and now what happens is without the Supreme Court lifting a finger or spending a penny of its social or moral capital, uh, five states have turned over and my guess is there will be challenge after challenge after challenge and the lower courts will continue to cite each other and cite the passages from Windsor that, force, uh, that support them so that I don't see there being any reversal in this and I think what the Supreme Court kind of hopes will happen is that this whole thing will be done without its intervention and so therefore it can at least duck the charge that is engaged in some sort of unprincipled judicial activism. And I think the supporters of gay marriage will generally be happy with this result, though not thrilled. They'd rather win the clean victory. The opponents of gay marriage, of course, are, are not going to win politically and the defenders of federalism who believe that this should be a democratic decision made by the states, like the Wall Street Journal and its editorial today, are going to be disappointed and grumbling about the entire outcome, noting that it's just another blow in the sort of the uh, neutral jurisprudential role that the Supreme Court plays in American affairs. So I think, in effect, it is big news. Uh, it doesn't resolve any of the major legal issues, but the clear necessary prediction going forward is that there is going to be no lower court resistance to the claims that gay marriage is required under the Equal Protection Clause. I want to touch on something that you hinted at a moment ago. There has been a lot of criticism from uh, people who hold similar views to your own, people who are sort of generally on the political right but are in favor of same-sex marriage as a, as a policy issue. There's been a criticism that this whole process, even if it's pointed in the right direction, has relied far too much on the courts and not nearly enough on the democratic process. So two questions there. One – um, let me just give you the first one on its own. Do you agree with that critique? Um, I do, and I think what's important to note is that this case is rather different from the situation in Brown v. Board of Education with which it has been sometimes compared. In Brown v. Board of Education, you had a group which was isolated, fragmented, spat upon, beaten up and berated by large numbers of people who should have known better. And you could not rely on the tender mercies of the Mississippi or the Alabama legislature to write this thing if the year was 1951. Uh, with the issue that we have today on gay marriage, it's quite clear that all the political power and influence runs in the opposite direction. It's the supporters of traditional marriage as the sole and proper form of marriage who are in a headlong retreat. And so the political process, I think, in this case can do something which would have never been able to do on the issues having to do with race. And one has to sort of understand that the, as the thing, as the issue starts to move forward, uh, the number of gay people in high and influential positions is exceedingly large. 
their support base is very, very great. Uh, so to call this a discrete and insular minority despised by the rest of the population is, I think, rather overstated. In fact, it's important to remember that the debate today is not whether or not these couples can get together. It's a debate whether you reserve the term marriage to traditional marriages and call these arrangements civil unions or whether or not you use the term marriage to cover both. Uh, that doesn't seem to me to be as an important issue of trying to get rid of segregation in the South, trying to allow voting rights and do the whole sets of other things that are necessary in order to dismantle a totalitarian society. So I think the political process could do it, and I'm sure that it will. It doesn't take any genius to realize that the younger you get, the more pro-gay marriage you are, and so that as the sort of Republican gentry in their 60s and 70s, you know, folks of my age and not necessarily of my disposition sort of fade in influence and power. Uh, this thing will become a juggernaut. And in a political sense, by the year 2020, at the very latest, this entire issue would be done. So if there was an excessive reliance on the judiciary here, what sort, if any, difference is the process likely to make in the in the long run? What I'm asking, are there lingering problems that we'll have as a result of this being sort of fast-tracked through the judiciary rather than going through state legislatures or, or ballot initiatives? Yeah, I mean, look, the, one of the things that I fear about is that the classical liberal position is generally tolerant with respect to uh, gay marriage and thinks that the state monopoly power should not be exerted against couples that wish to get together. Uh, it also takes the same view with respect to polygamous relationships, which received a horrible and totalitarian response from the United States Supreme Court in Reynolds against the United States in the late 1870s. But there is also the question about whether or not private individuals who do not wish to participate in gay activities are going to be allowed to discriminate against gays in the way in which, for example, they run their own businesses or their own churches. And if one starts to say that, well, we've now established under the Equal Protection Clause that any sense of discrimination against gays is completely irrational, any tradition that supports it is completely indefensible, now the state decides to pass a statute which says that uh, it turns out that the Catholic Church has to ordain gay ministers and and that individuals are now required to serve gay couples in weddings, even if it's against their own religious beliefs. And at this point, the gay rights movement turns totalitarian. Um, and it forgets that it's just made an enormous switch from defending their own rights against intrusions by others to telling the rest of the world how it places. And the more you stress the constitutional argument, the more shrill the rhetoric will come. Whereas if you put this particular issue in a legislative format, um, you are going to get people genuinely prepared to make compromises and these are compromises that make perfectly good sense. I have taken this position now for years that the anti-discrimination laws as applied to competitive industries are always a mistake, that you want to allow people with different views to go in different ways, that it is basically a dangerous form of government intolerance, for example, in the Hobby Lobby case, to announce that under the Affordable Care Act, employers have to supply contraceptive services to women and abortion services to women, even if they go in the teeth of their religion disbelief. And that kind of intolerance, I think, can spread to this particular issue. So in my view, the point about the political process is not only to slow down the pace a bit, which is not my primary motives, but is to allow the other voices to be heard on this second issue. And my fear is if it keeps going like this in the judicial setting, uh, that people will become emboldened to argue that all sorts of established practices now count as illegal establishments of religion or something of the sort. Well, to that point, you mentioned the courts being dismissive of tradition. Probably the 
most uh, glaring example of that came from your University of Chicago colleague and occasional sparring partner, uh, Judge Richard Posner. Why don't you explain for the audience briefly how Posner handled that situation and then your reaction to the point that he was trying to make? Well, I mean, I fortunately did not, could not bring myself to listen to this, but they, he became an instant folk hero amongst gay rights individuals because I think there was some attorney representing, I believe, the state of Indiana, and Posner from the bench lashed into him with a kind of fury uh, that you would only want to do to the devil incarnate. And he kept on saying, every argument that you're making here in favor of tradition is completely and totally irrational. You've got to come up with something better than this. And it was sort of this dismissive and abusive and derisive with respect to these things. And I don't think judges from the bench with all their natural powers should do that. It's also, I think, kind of crazy. And let me sort of mention why. The first thing to understand about Judge Posner is he generally regards himself as the lady, late date and leading apostle of Justice Oliver Wendell Holmes. And Oliver Wendell Holmes' most famous position on this was, of course, uh, Lochner against New York. And what he said in that case is that I'm going to uphold any virtue statute that you could imagine unless you could show that it deeply offends the origins and traditions of our people. And with that, he upheld the maximum hour law on the grounds that the common law rules weren't strong enough. Well, essentially what Lochner called for was a rational basis test that was low and allowed things that he would regard as irrational to pass muster. Now the rational basis test is reconfigured and it's not rational unless it's right and all of a sudden you're using it to strike down a statute and what's ironic about it is the statute that you're striking down is one that was certainly defended by way of tradition. So what Judge Posner then does is he takes after tradition as though it's some kind of evil practice. You know, I work in a lot of private law areas and one of the things that you discover going back to the earliest times is if there is a durable tradition then generally speaking you assume that it works for the people who are governed by it at least if they participated in its formation so a durable position of one group to enslave another is not a tradition worthy of honor precisely because the slaves don't participate in its formation but when you have commercial practices between traders or the development of water rights in accordance with customary rules where everybody is on the winning and losing side of both transactions custom is a very powerful test of the way in which things are going right. And to say, therefore, that it's completely arbitrary opens you up to the following question. All right, let's suppose that it's arbitrary. Then do you think that you're dealing with the same social situation in two areas? One is you have the traditional ban on gay marriage, which I think, as I said before, is not ultimately justified. But suppose we just arbitrarily reversed it and we allowed gay marriages and we decided that heterosexual marriages are to be forbidden. That is, we drew the distinction in the opposite direction. Well, I mean, that would be the end of civilization as we know it in a rather strong sense, particularly earlier on uh, when reproduction had to take place by natural rather than artificial means. And so if in fact you're saying that this thing is completely arbitrary, then you're saying it makes no difference whether we ban the one or we ban the other. Uh, what we think is that the distinction is arbitrary, the manner in which it's exercised is arbitrary, and so none of this, none of this matters. But of course it does matter. And, you know, when I start hearing people come forward and say, you know, what we should do is basically restore parity between the two groups by banning heterosexual marriage, um, it seems to me that that gets on the loopy side of things and that nobody would defend it. And indeed, one of the things that's so troublesome about this whole debate is the area in which there was a tradition, namely polygamous marriages, you cannot get any advocate of gay rights to come forward and say those decisions turn out to be wrong. I could recall I had a debate on this at Columbia, and the defender of the 
gay rights decisions refused to address the polygamy issue. But there, in effect, we had a tradition that was suppressed by government action. And I think, in fact, uh, since you could at least identify a procreative purpose with respect to those kinds of unions, uh, that uh, polygamous marriages are more close to traditional marriages than gay marriages are. You know, I don't want to draw these distinctions in terms of my own political views, as I've stressed before, but constitutionally in an area in which the state was given huge deference on matters of morals, uh, what the Justice Posner position did was essentially reject hundreds of years of history in favor of a scathing denunciation of tradition, uh, which was, I think, inappropriate in the particular case and, in fact, much too broad in dealing with all sorts of other issues. And what we have to be careful of in this case is intolerance against those with whom we disagree. It's always easy to be tolerant for people whose views you like. It's much harder to show them respect when you don't respect their particular views. And when you're a judge, I think you really have to back off. I mean, I have a term which I call Article 3 personality. That is, Article 3 is the power which has judges shit. And since they're always up there and nobody can talk back to them, what happens is they tend to go a bit too far. Other judges have done it. I don't like it then, but I thought in this particular case, a statement that was generally thought to be heroic was in fact a misguided. He could of course write the opinion in exactly that way along with a host of other judges, but I don't think you have to hang out to dry the poor lawyer who is trying to do his job for the good state of Indiana. All right. Thank you, Richard, and thank you to our listeners. And remember, you can find Richard's weekly column, The Libertarian, by visiting definingideas at hoover.org, and you can follow him on Twitter at Richard A. Epstein. For the Hoover Institution, I'm Troy Sinek. Thanks for listening. This podcast has been a production of the Hoover Institution. For more information about our work, please visit hoover.org.